You're listening to Builderpedia, your go-to podcast for everything you need to know about property. By covering the entire journey from buying your home through to design, building, selling and everything in between. We'll help you fill in the blanks and bring your property vision to life. Welcome to the latest episode of Builderpedia. I'm Matt and joining me today is Sharif Mahindran, creator of YouTube channel Building Beautifully, which I've really enjoyed. I've, I've really loved the quirkiness and the amazing videos that Sheriff's been presenting. So thanks for joining us, Sheriff. Thank you for having me, Matt. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> and as we just, I think we had a little chat prior to starting, you're, you've got like a hundred times more listeners and, and viewers than we have. So we're, we're totally, <laughs> this episode is all about jumping on your rocket ship. And- Exposing you guys. Yeah. <laughs> getting an extra five listeners for our podcast. Hopefully more than that. I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but before we get too far, and we'll ask you like where we found you and how you got on our podcast. But I, I guess initially, I mean, I wanted to share, I don't know, I, and I'm curious as to whether this is a common inspiration for both of us, but do you yeah. watch Adam something on YouTube? I used to a bit, yeah, actually. I found he's a little bit angry for my liking, but I did watch some of his videos, yeah. But he's very funny. He's very great. He's very good. He, he can get very angry, but I think he's angry for the right reasons. Like, he sees what America's like. Yeah, it's a great channel, yeah. Yeah, but I think he just... I mean, I love his take on Elon Musk's weird subway. Oh, uh, yeah. I love that video. If we're talking about the same video, I love that one. Yeah. We're talking about the same video, the Las Vegas metro line yeah. that takes one car at a time he slowly like turns it into from a car proposal into a metro it's like so clever he's a very clever guy yeah 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 and it just points out the absurdity of having a tunnel yeah. for one car moving slowly through it at a time he i'm not sure if you if you realize this but he elon admitted later that he hates transit systems because you're surrounded by weird people it's just like that's why he suggested it it's like he has a very backward perception of public transport and that's like the rest of america you know (laughs) or a lot of america i don't want to generalize but yeah (laughs) yeah and so that's that's my inspiration i we do ask if you want to share an inspiration oh for my youtube channel yeah uh i really like jay foreman have you do you watch his stuff no but i will now (laughs) (laughs) right that down anyone anyone who's listening he's a pretty big channel he's got over a million subscribers he does i find if i have to compare myself to any channel i think jay foreman's a good one because he specifically just does london pretty much he doesn't really leave london just pretty much london videos and he does kind of similar to me like very quirky stuff like why does this motorway end in the middle of nowhere or uh how many boroughs does london have or what's with weird street naming or weird time zones he does all this really fun stuff like that kind of similar to what i do one difference he is a comedian so he's a lot funnier than me viewers of mine who are listening will know i try to put humor into my videos and i think i succeed mostly but i definitely am not as funny as him that's one thing i'd love I to think you do on. very well i actually think you're you're not giving yourself enough credit i think it's uh oh, thank it's you very good very clever and um yeah, it's definitely funny. Oh, thank you. And sometimes it's, I'm happy, I'm happy it's funny in a quirky way that, that maybe you haven't intended, but, uh, you know. <laughs> no, that's that's pretty much what I intend, yeah. So, Jay Foreman, I know, I, I think the thing that came to mind is that he, he focuses on London, and I remember as a young backpacker a thousand years ago, 
but <laughs> being in London and really finding it hard to get out of London because it was so expensive to buy a train ticket and I was only earning yes. five pounds an hour working in a in a like outdoor gear shop at the time, a retail shop in the middle of London, sleeping in a roach infested dorm. Yes. It's just trying to make enough money to get out. <laughs> when I hear people complain about train prices in Sydney, I think to myself, well, go to London and have a look how expensive it is there. It's insane in London. <laughs> yeah. I literally didn't leave zone one for like four weeks. Like I was, I was actually like, I mean, I didn't mind. I, I, there was a lot of phenomenal things to see, but yeah, I literally just did not think to go to the outer burbs of London. Couldn't afford to get right out of London. For whatever reason, I was actually, it's funny you should mention this because I was just looking at it before the podcast. Uh, London's um, barely subsidized by the government, their transit. It's like 75% of the transit is run on uh, passenger revenue, which really surprised me. Um, you wouldn't find statistics like that in Sydney. I don't know. I don't know what it is in Sydney, but like, it's definitely not that high. Trust me. Yeah. And, but is that even the metro in London or the tube? Oh, uh, yeah. Everything. The underground, all of it. It's all very expensive. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah, right. Well, uh, yeah, I can attest to that because I was I was trapped. Yeah, because I think 76% of the operating costs are from passenger revenue, whereas in most countries, most of it has to come from the government because public transport does not raise much money. That's why it's public. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, we've gone off various tangents, but I did want to bring no. it back to <laughs> talking about your podcast, Building Beautifully, uh, not podcast, sorry, uh, YouTube yeah. channel. And <laughs> YouTube channel. Wanted yes. to tell our listeners a bit more about you and how you got to be a YouTube channel personality and how, yeah, how, how all that came about. And uh, yeah, tell us a bit more about how you got there and how you got here. It's a very complicated story. And I've kind of told it already on my YouTube channel, but I used to be a medical student, used to study medicine for, I studied it for three years. I didn't find I really enjoyed it at all. I don't, it didn't really align with my passions. Nothing about medicine really struck me. I guess like nothing really sparked my interests in a way. So in my third year, I was like, I don't really enjoy this much. Maybe I, I got to find something else to like do on the side. Uh, and I've always loved transport, like ever since I was young, transport and urban planning. Like, you know, I was that uh, kid who would always stare out the window on road trips. I like, always be looking firmly out the window, firmly at the road signs. That was always me. <laughs> So I was like, you know what, I um, will start a YouTube channel. I guess I've always also loved public speaking and talking. And I've also always loved video editing. So there's a lot of different things that came together for the YouTube channel. And I think what you'll find is I put enough work into it. It took a while, believe me. Like I took quite a few months of work for, to get a sizable audience. Like at first I was getting like, like I know one of my first videos about the Lane Cove Valley Expressway is this abandoned freeway. I uh, got like 200 views in two weeks, which is like unheard of now. Like I would never only get 200 views in two weeks. But yeah, that's the type of views I was getting. I think the success of the channel is largely because there's not really anyone else making content like this in Australia, which I think is going to change, especially because people will see like that there is an appetite for it, especially with my channel. But I feel like other than Julian O'Shea, he kind of does a similar thing to me down in Melbourne. Other than him, there's really not many other channels like this, and that's part of the success, I think. There's clearly quite a thirst for urbanist and transport content in Sydney, and I'm very excited to be um, part of that, you know? <laughs> and I guess Buildopedia is all about small developments. It's all about mum and dad developers and giving them a pathway through 
from property purchase to development of the property architecture and and we we cover that spectrum for small scale but yeah. i did yeah. want to try and connect that small scale and and that house or that property and that investment to infrastructure and i wanted to really explore how those two are connected yeah. because i mean i know like how most people may understand that they're connected in that if you purchase a property and then there's a metro line there announced and then planned and then built that improves property value so people already understand that there's a relationship. not everyone <laughs> but yeah yeah not everyone but most people and i guess most i guess the establishment in property development understand the relationship oh, sure, yeah yeah and yeah sure some people might be left behind but some people are always going to be left behind so I think that's what I wanted. I wanted to know what other connections are there, what other, how do the two relate to each other, correspond to each other, apart from property value and rezoning, how are the two linked? Well, I think we have to think about why why exactly the property values are higher. Why, why does a new metro line make the property values higher? So the property values being higher, that's like the surface level, very uh, superficial kind of thing that's improving. Like that's a very numerical metric. But why is that? Well, the area is more livable as a result. Suddenly, you can get places that you want to go so much more easily. Like, for example, my local metro station is Cherrybrook. Uh, I admit I'm not actually that close to them. I'm a good, I'm a good 10-minute drive, sadly, but uh, it is my local metro station. And it's made it so much easier to get around, mainly for people who live near Cherrybrook Metro. It's so much easier to get to Chatswood, get to the city, get to Castle Hill. And suddenly, Cherrybrook's a much more livable area. Suddenly, people want to live there. I think that's a big part of what makes public transport projects so good because it's like suddenly so much easier to get there. And I think it's something, it's easy to neglect it. Uh, you'll find with some newer developments on Sydney's edges, like Marston Park and Oran Park, you can't get to those places as easily. I think it's just very important and very intrinsic. And I can definitely talk about how there are some people who don't necessarily believe that. Because, for example, my grandmother lives close-ish to the station and she was worried about the metro because she thought it would actually uh, do the opposite of what you're saying. She thought it would decrease her property values, would you believe? Uh, because at the end of the day, there are always like going to be disadvantages to major projects. I mean, the noise of the station, like it could be loud. You could have more traffic, which I think is kind of a little bit of a silly fear. Like, why would you have more traffic near a train station? I mean, it's a train station. <laughs> Uh, like, obviously, people are going to be getting on the train. They're not going to be driving. Also, I guess a fear that maybe it'll bring, like, undesirables to the community. Like, people will be able to get there eat more easily, and we don't want people. But um, for the most part, I think m- most people realize that public transport increases their property values, and it does so because it makes the area more livable, more desirable, and just a better place to live for everyone. So do you think, because a long time ago when um, the Bondi Junction and, and I'm presuming you you might know the story, but maybe maybe not. Roughly, Originally, roughly, the, yeah. the the Bondi Junction line, which is part, I guess it's heavy rail, but it's part sort of underground. And initially, that was going to go to Bondi Beach, and the residents of Bondi and Beach. Wick. And I, I didn't know about. I I heard the story about Bondi Beach and the protests and the, the uh, just outrage. There've been two attempts. There've been two attempts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I guess that. I wonder if that it has changed because it was that's what it seemed to be about about undesirable people coming to the beach and it being overrun well it's it's overrun anyway no i think the problem is a lot of people 
I still have very backward perceptions of public transport. And I've talked at length about this, uh, like on on two SER before, and even on my channel. I think um we've kind of been sold for je- for decades. Australians have been sold with the idea of the Australian dream. You know, live in a big car, live in a big house, live near your, your work. You know, like hey, you can live wherever you want. If you want to live in Dulwich Hill, you can live there. If you want to live in Wollstonecraft, you can live there. You get to have the big house, and you get to still be able to get to work easily uh, in your car. But it turns out that that's not sustainable. We need public transport to get around. But I think some people still have that backward perception because, of course, the suburban dream kind of assumed everyone would drive, right? And if you didn't drive, it was because you couldn't. It wasn't because you didn't want to. It was because you couldn't. Like 30, 40 years ago, uh, you didn't drive because you actually, like, you couldn't afford a car or, I don't know, you had, I'm not sure, honestly, vision problems, uh, like so many other options. Like driving was seen as more elite. And I think that's what the problem was in Bondi. I think they kind of saw public transport as something that would bring people who couldn't afford to drive to Bondi. We only want people who can afford to drive because if you could afford to drive, that means that you are good enough. And I think a lot of people still have that perception, which I think is a bit sad. And I think that's what I'm trying to work to change a little bit with my channel. Channels like Not Just Bikes do it as well. Obviously, he's much more successful than me. Um, He's got a million subscribers. And I think another problem with um, the Bondi Junction NIMBYs and the Bondi NIMBYs, uh, they kind of talk about how it's overrun and how there's traffic and a new train line will bring more traffic. But but it's such a fundamental misunderstanding of the problem because if you build a train line, you're actually going to have less traffic because everyone's going to be taking the trains instead. The funny thing about public transport investment is the more public transport investment you have, the better it is to drive. It sounds nonsensical to someone who doesn't just stop to think about it for five seconds. But if you stop to think about it, you realize if you build more public transport, less people drive. If less people are driving, it's a better experience for those who are left. Uh, I went to Singapore and there's no traffic there at all. Like it's such smooth driving um, because everyone uses public transport. Of course, they also have car taxes. They also have very expensive car registration and and other, yeah, yes, which is disincentive, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. But we can't diminish the the value of good public transport investment. And that's, the residents of Bondi have screwed themselves over, if anything, because that's why their area is overrun. It's because they insist on not building a public transport line. So one thing that I've noticed or I've maybe hypothesized about and no one's actually said, oh, no, that's actually wrong. And maybe you're, maybe you're yeah. going to say, no, that's actually wrong. But We'll see, we'll see. <laughs> there's definitely an uplift in property prices when a metro is announced or when people know. But I think there's also a lag between that price being realized. I think that price keeps escalating when the metro or infrastructure actually opens. Like I, I think people don't appreciate it people click when it's finished i wonder if that's just my i've said it to a few people no one said no that doesn't doesn't everyone said no that's exactly right so i'm wondering if that is right is there still uplift if you're buying into so you know just putting on my i guess property advisory hat is there still uplift once our metro and there's a metro line i'm very lucky it was dumb luck rather than amazing sort of property wit, but they are building the new White Bay metro line, right, or metro station very close to where, where I am. And it was just... You're very lucky. But I feel like the uplift will come. It, there's a lag because... And I'll give you another little... And I'll let you answer, but I know from selling property that the minute it's hot, 
all people want to know about is aircon, and the minute it's cold, they'll only ask about the heating in the house. And it's just very so. So if you, you've got to be ready for yeah. the <laughs> weather, you've, you've got you've got to know which part of the year you're much better off selling a south-facing property in the middle of summer when it's nice and cool. People people don't think ahead like like that's just the nature of of people. Right, and I, okay. so I know this from from developing property, but I think it's a similar thing. People kind of go, yeah, yeah. There's a metro line, metro line, but then they see it in operation and they go, wow. That's amazing. Even though they yeah. can probably go drive around across town and see it in operation elsewhere, but they don't exactly. quite click. There's a massive part of Sydney that hasn't been on the metro yet. Have you been on the metro yet? No, I haven't been on the metro yet. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I think perceptions of the metro will change when it, like next year, because next year it'll be in the city. All right. So a lot more people are going to actually use it. It'll go all the way to Sydney. As for what you were saying about the property uplift, yeah, I agree. There's probably a bit of a lag. Like, no one wants to buy a property knowing that there's a metro station coming. I mean, maybe, but I think once it's actually there, that's when you would see the property prices rise. I'm not a property expert, though, so it's hard to hard to know. But, um, that would be my theory. I think because it's like, uh, you know what a government's like. I mean, we've cancelled projects before. There's been talk about cancelling the Sydney Metro West, the one that you're near. I don't think they will, like just for anyone listening. I, I think they're bluffing. But, um, you know, it's things like that that leave people uncertain. Uh, like, of course, we both know on a surface level they're not going to cancel it. When it comes to actually buying the property, it's suddenly like, wait, but what if they do? You know, it's like a bit more uneasy, right? Yeah, I mean, I've, I think the government lost a little bit of credibility at that point where they threatened to cancel it. They want to look like they're going to rescue it from liberals' horrible <laughs> management or something. It's really, it's, it's actually, that's uh, actually the reason, as far as I know. Um, yeah, yeah, you're just going, not you're not serious. You're not, that is not. It, Everyone's you're, seeing you're, through it, pretty much. Everyone in there yeah, seeing through it. it. But they flipped from cancelling it one week to extending it the next week, and I'm like, mm, yeah, okay, <laughs> because they have no idea, basically. <laughs> but anyway, that's you know, I, um, neither here nor there. My point is, I think, yeah, I think there's a bit of a lag. I would agree with that. Yeah, and by sheer coincidence, we were watching, doing a bit of research, watching one of your videos, and. There's Mel, who was on our last podcast, and it's just yes. like, hang on a minute, what is going on here? <laughs> small world. It was purely coincidental. There's a small world in Sydney and in, in, I guess, people who are interested in planning and property. You were talking about Imbiism, Imbi, Sydney Imbi? Yimbi, Yimbi. Tell us about Sydney Yimbi. Yeah, so Sydney Yimby is basically a um, a advocacy group that's advocating for abundant housing in Sydney. It's very simple. We believe that there's just not enough being built in Sydney. I mean, you look at the stats. You can look at any news article. We, the demand is stripping the supply. Like, there's more demand than there is supply. We're simply not keeping up. We need. I'm not going to say figures because I don't know the exact numbers, but we need a lot more houses than we currently have in order to actually keep up with population growth. And we believe that a substantial contributor to lack of supply are NIMBYs. So basically people around train stations, not just train stations, but primarily train stations, uh, who refuse to give up their big detached property, big detached piece of land um, because, you know, they've worked hard for it 30, 40 years ago and they don't want to give it up and they don't want to see their, their community change. And we're kind of fighting against that because we believe like, we're, we're a democracy. Everyone, like those people have, they have their right. Like they have the right to complain 
But I believe, and I think Sydney Imby in general believes that we also have the right to say yes. And that's what Sydney Imby is all about. We're trying to get as many people on board as we can. Uh, people like me, people like Building Beautifully viewers and uh, all sorts of people to kind of go to council meetings and make online submissions and, uh, you know, just kind of resist, uh, kind of approve, um, voice our approval for abundant housing, you know, be a um, voice of reason in a society that's mostly saying no, a very vocal minority, might I say. And I'm not a NIMBY, I, I'm very much, I'm a YIMBY, I guess, uh, maybe I'm a NIMBY when it comes to overzealous or, or ugly and yeah, obscene yeah. development. Oh, no, of course. And we're the same. Yeah, yeah. But just pretend I'm an angry NIMBY and I'm don't, and you want to build a, you know, four, five, call it five to six story development in a close to a heritage conservation area and I've got a house and I don't want it and I don't want to know about it. What are you going to tell me? Well, I guess one thing that would be important is where, how close are we to a train station? Because I think that's an important detail. Well, we're going to be very close. We're going to be very close to a future, to a future, pretend we're going to be within sort of five to 10 minutes walking distance to a future metro line. But I'm still, I'm worried about, you know, I'm worried about a few things. I don't want things to change. How are you going to convince me, I guess, is my, is my curiosity. It's a tough one. It's a tough one because I think that NIMBYs kind of have heard all our arguments and they disagree with a lot of them. So I guess it would depend on the points that you raise. For example, you want to conserve your area. Uh, you want to protect it. I guess I would return with the question, where do you suggest we build new housing instead then? And I wonder what the NIMBY would say to that. Because if you ask me, there is no better location than right next to a future metro station. Yeah. No, no, that's a great point. Where I guess somewhere else would be the answer. But um, as long as it's not in my backyard, I'm, I'm totally supportive of it. But um, that that's, I guess, the point. But do you realize that, I guess this is what I would say, um, the government spending billions and billions of taxpayer dollars um, to pay for this metro station, uh, wouldn't you agree it's fair that we should be sharing we should be trying to um, allow as many people to access that station, spreading out access to as many people as possible rather than reserving it for a special select few. Wouldn't you agree with that? That's what I would say. <laughs> well, what if I've been here? What if I've lived here for 50 years and this is my community and I fear that my community is going to be disrupted and destroyed? Was your community always the same 50 years ago when you moved in? Has it been the same for the last 200 years? Or has it changed and adapted with the times? Well, it hasn't changed in a long time. But <laughs> and that's part of the problem, isn't it? That's part of why yeah. we have a housing crisis. And I think the NIMBY would come back with, you know, why don't we stop immigration instead? Or um, well, that's probably what they would say, to be honest with you. I think that's a very common argument. And I, I'd have yes. a pretty good comeback to that too, which is we need immigrants, first of all. Any country needs immigrants. I think it's a very silly thing to think. And someone commented this on my YouTube video yesterday. They said... Um, you're giving the government too much credit. They're not just letting immigrants in for fun. Like they're not just like, Hey, come on in. Like we're doing it because we need them. I think it would be giving the government too much credit if we were saying, ah, oh, they're just doing it to be nice. Like uh, we're doing it for more than that. We need immigrants. We need skilled immigrants. We need immigrants to actually do a lot of jobs. Uh, the jobs we don't um, necessarily want to do, even the jobs that we do want to do, but don't necessarily have enough people to do them. But even more simply than that, unless and I, I'm quite passionate about this. Unless you are ethnically Aboriginal, you have no right to say that we shouldn't allow migrants in this country because you are a migrant within the last 200 years, most likely. Like my family 
my parents both migrated here. Most people who are making these complaints will have migrated here at some point. They could probably trace it back to their parent or their grandparent or their great-grandparent. Like very recently, they migrated here. And to just be anti-immigration, suddenly to decide that Australia is full. I'm sorry, but we're a country of 25 million or uh, with land the size of like not much smaller than China. So to say that we're full, you know, <laughs> it's a very bold claim. <laughs> yeah, and it's a sort I mean, Im- immigration is a sore point for me as well. And I think one of the things, there is a economic argument for raising immigration. And one of the problems we have in Australia at, at the moment, it's just so pronounced and I'm dealing with it every day because I, I have a building company. And so I just can't get skilled people. There just aren't enough skilled people around to do the jobs that we need done. And the immigration seems to have put student visas into hyperdrive. And the problem is, which you may not be aware of, but I'm very aware of, is that we're getting lots of amazing people who are coming in and they have no skills and they have no no skills when it comes you mean to students. Yeah, yeah. Students who are very good. And if this country, if, if there was a world competition on passing English tests, we'd smash it. But the problem is people with hand skills, people like stonemasons, bricklayers, carpenters tend not to do very well in English tests and we don't yeah. get them so- here. If anything, what you're saying suggests we need more immigration, which is exactly the opposite of what Nimbus want. But yeah, no, I completely agree. I think we need people to do the jobs that we don't necessarily want to do. And I know that sounds reductive, but it's, I mean, it's true. Like, unless you are willing to go and do that yourself, we kind of, we need people to do that. As long as we're paying them well, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, we need to bring immigrants in. Uh, we can't just say no to immigration. And it's just, it's just a horrible argument. It's an excuse, you know. A lot of people who are anti-immigration are, see themselves as economic rationalists, and yet it's such such a dumb argument. But um, we've gone from transport to, to immigration, and just for the record, I'm not I'm not a NIMBY. I don't represent. I was just being a devil's advocate, I guess, because it no, no, of course, of pretty course. boring if we both agreed on everything. <laughs> I'd love to talk to an actual NIMBY one day. I don't know if I'd have the guts though. But ah, <laughs> oh, ah, oh, we should. Well, we should arrange. <laughs> I'll find one. I'll, I'll just ask around at um, at the Welcome Hotel in Roselle. I'll say, is anyone here against the oh, so I've got a guy. Every and, hand uh, goes up. Every hand goes up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know. I sometimes wonder, you know what I do wonder? If NIMBYs are people who are don't want development in their backyard, if the quantity of those people or the share of those people in society is overstated because of how loud a tiny number of people are? Like, what are the stats? Do you have stats on how many NIMBYs there are? Like, how many NIMBYs in my neighborhood? I don't think it's that high at all. Um, I think it's definitely the minority, but that said, it isn't maybe quite a massive minority. So how do I put it? NIMBYs, I think we can define NIMBY as vocal NIMBYs. Like, vocal NIMBYs, not many. But then there are also plenty of people who have a NIMBY... Uh, mindset. They won't necessarily act on it, which is good. We don't want them to act on it. But there's, I think you'll find there is a sizable population in Australia that have the NIMBY mindset, even if they aren't actually NIMBYs. Like they're not actually going to go and bother to do anything, largely because their community is probably not under threat. Let's be real. Like if you live in Deniston, they're not planning anything in Deniston. I bet you everyone there would be a NIMBY if they were planning anything. So 
I think that it is probably overstated the vocal NIMBYs, but then I think a lot of people have a NIMBY attitude, even if they don't do anything about it. Has anyone like studied how many like what portion of a particular suburb or a particular area or a partic- like what portion? I wouldn't would you know think- the answer. I wouldn't know. <laughs> Should do a survey on that. But the thing is, they never call themselves an NIMBY, though. You know, like oh, I am a NIMBY. <laughs> Yeah, but you can, I guess you can, you don't have to call them NIMBYs. You can call them people who don't want change in their neighborhood. So I wonder, like, I'm curious because it's kind of this, again, I'm be, being a bit, you know, calling you out a little bit going, well, you've got this crusade for YIMBYism. Is NIMBYism a real force? Like, is it a, is it an invisible force that is kind of, I mean, there's, and there's nothing wrong with rallying around positive development, but is the problem overstated? Is it a, like, you know, in, in the political sense? So are you sense, trying to is say, it, is it actually having as much of an impact on the housing crisis as we say, do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Is it a fact? Well, I think it is. Just to answer your question, I think it's definitely a factor, but I acknowledge that there are plenty of other factors. I acknowledge that, you know, like interest rates or like, look, I'm not a money expert. I'm just throwing words up there and negative gearing and capital gains and blah, blah, blah. Like I'm not, I'm not a property expert, but I know uh, the financialization of the property market. There's all these other factors that also contribute to housing prices being high. If we suddenly built, like if a million homes appeared in Sydney tomorrow, Sydney's housing crisis wouldn't suddenly be solved. Like, I don't think it's as simple as that, but it would help for sure because uh, it's basic economics, right? If you build more, if you increase supply, you decrease demand. I mean, it's basic economics. I mean, we all remember the tissue paper debacle back in 2020. Uh, the tissue papers went down in supply and suddenly the demand went up and the prices went up. Like, you know, it's, it's once you increase the supply again, which happened with the tissue rolls, suddenly prices fall back down again. So I definitely, yeah, I understand your point. Like maybe the NIMBY population isn't as loud as you'd think, but I think it is, I think it's still sizable. There's a map in our new video, the housing diversity video, where we show how much of stations are zoned for just detached houses, how many stations have just detached houses around them. And it's a worryingly high like number. Like There's so much on that map. It's like 40% or something around stations, if not higher. I, I'm not, don't quote me on that. I don't remember the exact number because it was, it's very hard to measure this type of thing, um, but it was something like 40 or 50% of land. And why is that? Well, I think, like, there's numerous reasons. Like, we're, we're taking our own sweet time to rezone. But more importantly, the government knows that politically it will be very unpopular if they rezone. And I don't think across all of society it would be that unpopular, but I think they know that those NIMBYs would campaign, like, strongly against that, that vocal minority. So... Yes, for, and I was going to put this in the video, but I didn't. But for every one b- development that is blocked by a, a NIMBY group, there's 10 more that probably would have had the like guts to go through, but then now they're not going to anymore. Because it's like, oh, that one failed. Why am I going to bother? I'm just going to go to another country or go to another city or go out west or something, you know? Um, why is a developer going to want to keep trying and fighting to get it built there when they could just go somewhere else? So NIMBYs have a snowball effect. That's what I think anyway. You know, I think um they will block a development and then you have more and more developments that are not going to go ahead as a result because it's, why would you spend two, three years trying to get it approved? Uh, you're not making any money in that time, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I think we, you and I both need to do a bit of research and um, kind of go, well, what is the size of the NIMB? What is, how do we define, how do we quantify that? 
the NIMBY and its impact because that that's really interesting to me. Like, has anyone bothered to to measure it and kind of maybe because where I'm thinking is well, if that data is available and actually governments realise that there are 12 people in the whole suburb who have got a problem, like maybe that's actually a powerful argument for you. Yes, and I think that's why we exist in the NIMBY. We're trying to become sizable because it's like, you know, uh, for example, with the base, there was a there was something, Friends of Callan Park, like it got 10 submissions that they were developing in the inner west. They got 10 submissions against it. Um, we all, Sydney and threw their power behind and we ended up getting like 50 submissions in support of it. So it's that type of thing. You're exactly right, Matt. Like, you know, we're voicing our approval for these things. And we're kind of a voice of reason against the NIMBYs. Just taking you back a step, because again, I mean, something something I'm passionate about, just because I enjoy is, is property, I guess, property development, advising clients on property development. And one of my arguments for... I guess purchasing property in a suburb like, I mean, we're we're active in in Balmain and and in the inner west. A lot of it is heritage conservation area. My argument for buying a property in Glebe or Balmain or a number of suburbs that this relates to is because going back to your supply and demand curve, supply is zero because I guess all of Balmain is a heritage conservation area. Yeah, exactly. So my argument is that demand is high, supply is zero, therefore that you're on the right side of economics. But I wonder if that at some point it flips over, if supply is too high, if places are overrun with apartments, does it ever impact property price negatively? I don't think it does, but... I don't think it does because... Look at suburbs like Walleye Creek, Chatswood, Rhodes, Stratford. They have plenty of apartments and Green Square, and they, their rents are pretty high, as far as I know. Like because I'd love to move out as a, as a uni student in, in with my girlfriend, but I mean we just can't afford it yet because we're both students still. So because so I've looked at the prices; they're they're, they're definitely not collapsing just because it's overrun with apartments. You know, <laughs> people. So want the to data live suggests otherwise. So so the data. I mean, anecdotally, defies. this is anecdotal, yeah. but yeah. So I have a confession. I have lived for the last however many years next to one of Australia's biggest building sites, which is the tangle of roads that is being built. West Connects. Roselle. Yep. West Connects, yep. Roselle. I am so close to the Roselle. But a guilty part of me is looking forward to driving in and taking half an hour off a drive to Canberra or cutting down time but a part of me also feels the guilty part goes but is that just a sugar hit is that just something that's a temporary fix that's actually going to wreck our lives in the future what are your thoughts what do i think um the thing is it's told like told motorways it's really wide as well it's a tough one like with the West Connect, I mean, I used to love the project when I, I was, I used to be a bit more of a road geek, I confess, like massive road geek. Even now, I still know Sydney's roads very well. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've come to recognize the value of public transport. It's a tough one. I think because it's told, it should be fine. And the public transport in the area is pretty good. But yeah, I mean, we'll have to wait and see, Matt. Like, we'll have to wait and see in 10, 20 years. Is it going to be, you know, the next M5 East? Is it going to be chock a block all hours of the day? 
Um, well, there's no that. doubt that it will happen because of the well sort of, you know, demand. The, the well-trodden path and the well-described problem of traffic induction, you know, like it. it yeah, does. exactly. Induced demand. And I think public transport just moves so many more people. And I think I get why the urban planners of 1950 were like, ah, cars are the solution. Because it's like, imagine having your own private train where you can drive it anywhere. Like you don't need train. You don't have to connect at point A and then point B and then point C. You can just drive straight from A to C. So it makes sense. But actually, it doesn't make very much sense because if each person has their own private train, fun fact, that takes up a lot of space on roads. That's why we have induced demand. So I guess I'd like to see our government stop building new roads. Uh, no more West Connexes, no more um, North Connexes. It's just more public transport. I think we have enough roads in Sydney. I think we need to build much more public transport. Because fun fact, the people who complain that we don't have enough roads, well, if you build more public transport, you're going to actually have a much better time driving. So even the people who like roads should actually want more public transport because public transport makes the driving experience better. And on the flip side of that, I do think a world city like Sydney doesn't need a minimum standard of freeway connect. Is there an like just a minimum accepted standard of road that's always going to be required that you should just you know that, or is that or am I just trying to make excuses? If you look at pretty much any city in America, even a city half the size of Sydney, their freeway networks are always more impressive than ours. Most cities in America. Like, no offense to Sydney, our freeway network's kind of pathetic. We have, like, very few freeways, and they're very poorly connected. America's are much more impressive, but, like, it's chock-a-block, and it's much less livable. So much traffic. I don't think there's a minimum required amount of road, because what happens is if the road's too trafficked, then people are just going to not make that journey, or they're going to take public transport instead, you know? So people will find another way. I don't necessarily... I think I'm, I'd be keen to investigated more i'm doing a civil engineering degree so i'm sure at some point i'm gonna to have to do analysis of this but uh i think people adapt i don't necessarily think there's a minimum required amount uh, people will adapt like if there were 10 freeways leading into sydney cbd and 100 car parks everyone would drive but since there aren't people just take public transport instead it's the well, beauty of sydney or everyone would be you know? stuck in traffic probably is more yeah. more the more the point because there's only one city hub right so you can only yeah, exactly. pack those car parks in so tightly but what's your, I guess, I was going to pretend that I've made you the Premier of New South Wales. <laughs> I wish. What are you building first? What are you building? What's the next? What's the most important project in Sydney that is not being built? Yeah, I've said this a lot. I said it in the Sydney Morning Herald as well. Norwest to Cogra Metro Line. I always have that answer prepared because... Uh, right now, it's very hard to travel around the suburbs in Sydney. Like, imagine you wanted to get from Hurstville to Parramatta. You'd have to go all the way into the city and then all the way back out to Parramatta again. That would take you an hour, I checked. <laughs> but if you had a Cogra to Northwest Metro line, uh, it would link up Cogra on the T4. Uh, I think Bex, uh, I think Beverly, Kingsgrove on the T8, uh, link up with Bankstown on the T3, uh, link, uh, and Chester Hill. Uh, on the T3, link up with Parramatta on the T1, and then link up with um, Norwest on the Sydney Metro. You link up with all these different lines, suddenly it's so much easier to get around. Like, what if I want to go from Stratfield, uh, not Stratfield, like Parramatta to Hurstville, it's so much easier. Parramatta to Norwest, so much easier. It's just so much easier suddenly to actually get around this city with that. And I think my dream is to see that line built in my lifetime. I don't care if it's in like 50 years. I just want to see that line built, you know? <laughs> And is it on the, is there any chance? Is it on the cards at all? Is it on the radar for anyone at the moment? 
it's on the radar, the very, very distant radar. If you look up Norwest to Cogra Line, I think, I think I'm probably the top result, uh, my video on it, maybe. There's also a George's River proposal about it, like the council proposed it. Uh, it's not a high priority by anyone, but I think more and more people are talking about it slowly. And hopefully, like my, my best estimate would be serious discussions about it in 20 years from now. I know that's a long way away, but, uh, this, I have a good analogy I like to use, which is that about 30 years ago, um, when the, the tragic Pacific Highway bus disasters happened, uh, everyone had made calls for a, um, to fully upgrade the Pacific Highway to dual carriageway, the whole way. And now it is like 30 years later, pretty much is, except for a few small parts. I like to think that our public transport system will be the same. Like now it seems impossible, but maybe in 30 years, things will be much different. That's my dream. Anyway, <laughs> maybe I'm an optimist. Maybe I'm too much of an optimist. Oh, look, I think, yeah, it feels like you just plug away and plug away and make the economic argument and someone will think it's a good idea at some point. But we need yeah, to get I more wonder, more people I wonder what the cost that. that yeah, what the cost will be. Mm, I think right now my estimate would be four thirty to forty billion dollars now in twenty twenty three money. <laughs> so yeah, you can imagine right. what it would be in thirty years time. And do you, what do you think of the tram? The light rail? The light rail, the new, the new light rail, which uh, everyone mocks for being very slow. No, it's not as slow anymore. I think people did that in the early days. It's much faster now. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's still the, where I, slow, where I wrong, see but, it, it's going pretty slowly but in, in the middle of the city. <laughs> the L1 but, or, uh, yeah, no, true. In the city, it has to go slow in the city because um, it's a city. But I think outside the city, it gets a bit faster. Yeah. But do you think metro or light rail or is there a, like, I guess both. light rail's both? I think most people like the light rail. I, I agree it could be faster, but I mean, it's a light rail at the end of the day. Like you don't use light rail. I have a video about it. You don't use light rail to go long distances. You use it more for short distances. So it's not meant to be like going at a hundred kilometers an hour. I think a good city incorporates a mix of both. Like one problem with Singapore, I would say is it's just MRT. Like they don't have any other, I mean, they do have an LRT, but it's not very good. And they do have buses, but I think that's one thing okay, we do better. You're going to have to tell us like, what an LRT and an MRT is now that you've yeah. The MRT is Singapore's version of a metro, and they have 134 stations. So they have like an insane number of stations. LRT is their version of a light rail, but it's fully elevated. So it's actually more like the monorail. And straight away, associating it with the Sydney monorail, you can see the problems. <laughs> it's hard to explain like in like one minute, but I guess, yeah, it just breaks down a lot in Singapore. And uh, it's urban planning-wise, not the best idea that I um, I think with Sydney, um, I'm glad we have light rail now. Uh, I think Melbourne obviously do it like a hundred times better than us, but uh, at least we have it back. And I think a good city incorporates both. Like Clovermore wants to build a light rail from Green Square to Broadway or something like that. I, I'd have to look into it. Um, and I think that's a brilliant idea. Um, Green Square has a train station. Broadway has a central station. But like imagine a light rail, like that would make it even easier. Um, a good public transport city has many options. It's not like just one train station. Like you need options for people, and I think that's the future of Sydney. So, what's your uh, what's your sense? Future of Sydney, good or bad, or what? It, what's good, score definitely you good. Have? I yeah. think we have a bright future. I think it's very easy to be pessimistic, but that's the internet as well. Like everyone on the internet's pessimistic, but I think there's a lot of good stuff coming ahead. Like we have, I, I don't know if people realize this, but we have like something like sixty metro stations that are going to be open by. Maybe it's not 60, uh, 40, sorry. I think it's 40 uh, metro stations that are going to be open um, by the year 2035, which is a lot. Like, no city in Australia is going to have any rapid transit stations except Sydney. 
Um, we have the Paramount Light Rail for Stage 1 opening next year. There's a renewed commitment to it. Uh, should open in, um, Stage 2 should open in uh, 2031. We have the new airport. We have a metro to the new airport. We have new extensions to the metro network under works. I mean, obviously, the state's kind of broke right now, so we're probably not going to see funding for that for a while, but I think eventually we'll get there. Groups like Sydney Yimby, I mean, Sydney Yimby is the type of group that will... I mean, we're very new. We only started in April, but I think... Our, our impact is small right now, but it's going to keep growing. Like more and more people are going to um, join and we're going to keep densifying. Like Sydney's definitely on the right track for all the reasons I've just listed. Um, it's easy to be pessimistic. I mean, we're like something like the fifth most unaffordable city in the world, but we're still tracking well. Like there's a reason why we're so unaffordable. It's because everyone wants to live here because it's such a brilliant city. Uh, if we can just finally solve that affordability aspect, I think we'll have something great. We'll have something great in this city for generations to come. And as part of the struggle, the obsession with a backyard and yep. having your own space, like, is Absolutely. that part? And, and how do you turn that around? I mean, even my own parents are like that. And uh, grandparents, I think I think we were sold with the idea when we were kids um, uh, and when they were kids and when their parents were kids that rich people, like real people live in a big house with a big backyard and, only poor people live in apartments. Like even I until very recently thought that like until like not long ago, because not, not like implicitly, like not intentionally, but it's kind of like a subconscious thought. Like we'd have this assumption that only poor people would live in apartments. But in reality, it's like, you know, it's, it's a very backward perception. And that is, I agree that obsession is what is causing our housing crisis. I think people need to accept. It's more than that because like, you know, I grew up in the Western suburbs 30 years ago and there everyone lived in houses it wasn't like a poor versus it whether you were poor middle class or upper house everyone had a house right so that apartment sort of being more affordable is quite recent from my well recent no okay a lot older than you younger i'm younger so yeah yeah yeah, okay that's interesting um it's not like maybe it's shifted yeah, that's even that's an interesting perspective. It definitely has, and and when I was a kid, the city was all offices. No one lived in the city at all. And that's, I think it's and, nice and, to hear and that. I'm old, but I'm not then, that old, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I've in my it's lifetime, nice I've seen it. Changed. A huge because transformation. I think I think urban planning fifty years ago was kind of like everyone lives in a big house and then everyone gets in their car in the morning and drives to the city and then everyone drives home. Because remember, um, when you were growing up, Sydney would have had like what three million, two million people it would have been much less. We were more like I can't remember Adelaide counting, or... but, <laughs> but we would have, yeah, uh, much less. We would have been less, more like sure. a population of Perth and Adelaide, and there it's a bit more sustainable. But when you're a city of five million with a population in Singapore, you can't have everyone living in a big house. It just isn't sustainable. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining me today. Like, really, really love the no, chat. No, thanks for having me, man. Um, yeah, it's been great. <laughs> I wish you well with uh, Building Beautifully. Yes, and, and I wish you well uh, with this podcast, Buildopedia. Thanks for tuning into Buildopedia. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating to help other listeners like you find our podcast. <laughs> for more information, please check out the show notes and connect with us on social media and subscribe, and we'll see you next episode. You've been listening to Buildopedia. Please remember to like us and share our episode with your friends. We'd love your comments and suggestions. And we have a new website, buildopedia.au, where you can get in touch or leave a question and check out our blog.